All right, so tough jobs in the Bible. I just found a pair of work boots because I hate wearing work boots because it means I'm going to do something hard, right? That's kind of the bottom line to the picture. So today we're going to talk about Jonah. Here's the problem with talking about Jonah. You all, almost all of you, know the story, right? And, and you, you, especially if you went to church, you heard it. It is the most popular thing to teach in Sunday school because artists love the imagery. They love, it's a picture book you can paint, right? There's, there's a big fish. By the way, the Bible never says it's a whale. But there's a big fish, and then Jonah's inside the fish, and it's, and it's just a wonderful story, you know? And so, um, but we've kind of carried over some things from our childhood, and I'm going to tell you that today is not going to be a children's message. Today you're going to get a lot more substance from uh, the, the back story to the story of Jonah. So first of all, when we hear the story of Jonah, I want you to realize it's not about the fish. And a lot of people get stuck on the fish is why I'm telling you that. And I'll try to help you get over the fish. If, by the way, if you're stuck on the fish, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. It's like the fish is the part of the story that makes you go, this is just a kid's story. So we'll get past that in a moment. The story isn't about, is about, excuse me, is about Jonah, sort of. And I hope at the end of the message you'll understand why I put the word sort of down there. It's written like a drama or a parable, but Jonah was a real guy. He was a real prophet, right? So this is one of the challenges. This is the only prophet that when we read the book of Jonah, it's not the words of Jonah, it's the story of Nineveh and, and, and Jonah, right? God telling him to do something. We'll get all into that in just a couple of minutes. So every other book, like Isaiah, it's not like, and one day Isaiah, it's not, it's not like that. This is, this is about, it's a story about Jonah and his relationship with God. So it's not his words as much. All right, so I said he's a real prophet. Let me tell you why I say that and why I can go, this wasn't just a story, but this is a real guy. It's because he's mentioned in, in books in the Bible that record the history of kings, their prophets, and what happened. So I'm going to just jump. You don't have to go there except mentally with me. Um, to 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. It's talking about Jeroboam II, the son of Joash. And you don't have to know these names. It's okay. I'm probably not saying them right anyway. All right, begin to rule over Israel in the 15th year of King Amaziah's reign in Judah. Okay, remember, this is when there's two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right? So Jeroboam II is reigning, and he reigned in Samaria, so now we know he's in the northern kingdom, 41 years. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, which means he didn't listen to God, he didn't honor God, and he just ran the kingdom, and he was kind of all into it for himself. He refused to turn from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and led Israel to commit um, more sins. So what, what happened was they were worshiping false gods. That was one of the major things that was taking place instead of the true God of Israel. And whenever we read that, I don't know about you guys, whenever I read about how did they do that, how did they go being from, remember, led out of Egypt by Moses and have this great God came through, God came through, to not following God and wor worshiping other false gods, it, it blows my mind except that I catch myself having different eras of my own history. But this is one of those bad chapters of history for Israel. Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Labo, Hamath, and the Dead Sea. In other words, he was fighting military battles and he won back some land. There's always border tensions in Israel taking place. Other nations are always encroaching. They're always trying to capture their land that was given to them by God. And um, just as the Lord, now this is part, he recaptured those lands, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, Son of Amittai. So we know this is Jonah, not just any Jonah. Maybe that name was around, but Son of Amittai. 
the prophet from Gath Hefer. All right, so that's all I want you to catch. He's listed somewhere as a person. So Jonah was a real prophet. He's listed right there in, in, in other, other places, but, but Jonah the book reads so differently. Now, the other reason I believe in Jonah, being this is true, is because he's mentioned by Jesus. And he's mentioned him not in a way like, oh, and you know the story of Jonah. It's not that. He mentions Jonah, and he's very specific and very pointed in why he brings this up. We can read this in Matthew chapter 12. It says, one day some teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. In other words, before we call you Lord, before we admit that you are who you say you are, do a magic trick. Do something elaborate to prove, you know, could, we heard you could walk on water. Can you do that for us? Could you turn some stones into bread? Could you heal a leper or two for us while we're watching and validating? Can you imagine if Jesus had to do that for everybody before they believed? We'll just do one magic. To be Jesus, the traveling magician, right? And he just looks at me and goes, ah, oh, you guys. So Jesus replies, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. Come on, you could follow me. You could see what I do. You could hear the teachings. You could decide for yourself. If you were really honestly inquisitive about me, you could seek me. But you guys aren't doing that. You're just trying to prove something. And you're looking for resistance, a way to resist. The only sign I'm going to give them, those kind of people, are the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's that sign? Well, if you remember the story, Jonah was swallowed by a fish and in the fish for three days. He brings that up. For as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish, for three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The point is, when he was in the belly of fish, he was given up for dead. And when Christ was in the grave, he was dead. And this is the sign. Is, you know, Jonah's kind of a symbol. of. And then he comes back to life when he gets spit out of the fish. I didn't mean to ruin the story for you, but I'm thinking you know it. And, and Jesus rose from the dead. So that's the sign. The people... And you're going to understand how huge a statement this is. I want you to remember it because I may not bring it up again. Listen to what Jesus said. The people of Nineveh, Nineveh will stand up against this generation. You guys, you think you're so holy. And I'll just give you a clue. Nineveh wasn't. Nineveh wasn't. Nineveh was next to being judged, destroyed by God completely. You Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, you think you're so holy. I'm telling you, on Judgment Day, the people of Nineveh, right, and they almost always spit after they said Nineveh, would, are going to be judging. They're going to Judgment Day, they're going to condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, which, by the way, he could have said the lame preaching of Jonah, and I'll tell you why it's lame in a little bit. The lame preaching of Jonah, now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. You refuse to follow. You refuse to, refuse to change your mind. So that's Jesus. It doesn't sound like a made-up person to me. It doesn't sound like a made-up event to me when he brings up Nineveh. Other than the fish, there's no reason not to believe it. See, this is where, and I totally get it. If I didn't believe in God, I would think this is a fairy tale. Two reasons. One, I was told it as a child, and it felt like a bedtime story. And the second reason is that if I don't believe in God, then how do you survive being swallowed by a fish and living in its stomach for three days? I mean, there's no oxygen. Yeah, I know. I know. There's no oxygen. And there's acid, you know, because stomachs have acid lining. I get it. The, they would come out all digested if he even got thrown up, you know, after three days. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Here's the issue, though. I do believe in God. I believe in God. I don't have a better answer for you than that. 
But if you believe in God and you believe in the resurrection of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, really, this is a problem for you? So it's easier to believe that Jesus was put into a cold grave and came back out on Easter morning after three days than it is to believe that someone got swallowed by a fish? Really, that's, that's the problem? Or that God split you know, the Red Sea and the, all the Israelites went, and all the plagues and start reading your Bibles and Jesus walked on water, fed 5,000 with a few little bit of food, all the miracles in Scripture, and you go, well, this is the one I can't believe. This is the one. And the reason that happens, is, I think, is because we were told at a young age, because we were told a story, bedtime. And so we kind of group it together with those things, and I think it's the real deal. Now, I'm not telling you you have to believe it to get the message. I'm just telling you I believe it. And I'm telling you, Jesus believed it. And I think the two of us are really good company, right? <laughs> so do it. All right, so let's start the book of Jonah together. We could, you're going to see a lot of black and white today because there's a lot of scripture we're going to look at because there's a story that has to be told. I'm not going to make it up. We're going to look at the actual words of scripture together. So here's what it says. Um, Jonah chapter 1. By the way, this reads like three acts, and then there's something at the end, uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4 doesn't get included in our children's books very often. So you may not know that part. So here we go. The Lord gave this message to Joseph, son of Amittai, real guy. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, real place. We'll talk about that in a minute. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Real wicked. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord, and I would add, and his will. Right? I don't think Jonah was so silly to think he could escape God. But the point was God told him to do something. And he wasn't going to do it. Now, real quick, Jonah was a prophet. What's a prophet's one job? To do what God tells him to. To say what God tells him to say. Not to speak out on his own. Not to do his own thing. By the way, what's a Christian's real job? Oh, never mind. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Kind of similar though, isn't it? To do what God wants us to do. This is why this gal was Jonah. Hey, I want you to forgive that person. Well, you don't know her, Lord, right? It's a Jonah moment. He got up and went the opposite direction away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, real place, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. All right. When you read a bunch of places, I want you to get the habit, because you own a computer, a phone. You know what Google is, right? Start Googling where is or where was and put this name of this thing that sounds like it's made up and you're going to start to understand where this took place. And I'm going to tell you, and maybe it's a little bit because I went to Israel and we had this experience, where has become so meaningful to me. And when and what was happening really, really matters. So let me show you where for the story. First of all, he starts off in, in Joppa. Can, can, can you see through me? Is this a good way to go this or should I go to the side? Okay, you don't get to have an opinion. Here we go. Why would I even ask you? All right, so Joppa is right here, and it's right here, and it's right over here, all right? So that's where Joppa is. Today it's Tel Aviv. If you come to Israel with me, and I hope you will, this next, next a year from November, you are invited, just join. You will have to pay, but come. We will land in Tel Aviv. You will land in Joppa, right? So that's where Joppa is. Uh, Mosul and Nineveh are the same place, right, in Iraq. And, and that's only 550 miles. He got on a boat through the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, which to Israelites is like saying, 
death. They, they're afraid of the sea. Even today, they don't swim. It's amazing. When you go to the Sea of Galilee, there's very few boats out in the water. You're going, this is like, this is like northern Minnesota. This lake is beautiful. It's more of a lake than a sea, right? It, they just call everything water sea in that, in that country. The Israelites are afraid of the water. The Jewish people still don't swim, so there's only a few recreational activities. We would have the only lake in the whole country filled with boats. You know, and that's not. It's just an amazing thing how empty it is. So, so to get in a boat is a really big deal. The sea represented death, and he's going 2,500 miles, right? This is um, 800 maybe BC. Technology is not real good. No GPSs. Right? But they're getting on a boat. He's going he's gonna to take this dangerous cruise. Here's my point. He went the opposite direction. So he's running away from God. It is a major run. It is goodbye to everything he knows. And he's running away because he did not want to go to Mosul. Now the question is why? Why was this such a visceral reaction for him? Why didn't he want to go there? And it was because of two emotions I think he was feeling. Fear and hate. Fear and hate. He feared the Ninevites. Actually, it wasn't the Ninevites. It was the Ninevites and the, the, the empire they belonged to, right? Because at that time, Ninevite was like the capital of the Assyrian Empire, all right? So this is, this is the Assyrian Empire. Let me go here. You can see the, the darker green, right? And this is Mosul or Nineveh to, in, in his day. And here's Joppa again. And what you see is the the darker green would have been kind of close to Jonah's day. That's how big the empire is. The lighter green, this whole green area, is how big the Assyrian empire became over the next 150 years. Now tell me, somebody just yell out, how do empires at that time, how do they increase their territory over the next 150 years? War, fear, killing people. And this is what these Assyrian Empire, this is everything they were about for the next 150 years. Now, I've got to be a little bit careful with you. I'm so excited about what I'm about to teach you. It is so cool, but some of you are going to go, oh, okay, and I, I get that. So if I get carried away and I tell you too much, you just have to forgive me when you leave the room because I've just been immersed in this lately. So, so I need to go. There, so, so Jonah's time, there's a king who's unnamed of, of Assyria. Right? But you need to know, Syria is already expanding its kingdom. This is why Jonah knows of these people. He knows of their warlike ways. He knows who they are. But uh, over the next 150 years, we get a bigger insight. Because Sennacherib, and I can never say his name right, so if you don't like how I said it, find your own pronunciation. There's nobody left to correct us. Right? They all died. So Sennacherib was the, was the king, and you're gonna be, you can look this up in your scripture, was the king of the Assyrian Empire, and his armies were moving through. Hezekiah, who was king at the time, refused to pay tribute. They were moving through Israel. They took over something like 46 different fortified cities in Israel, one at a time, just move, like the blob, moving down, taking over territory, taking over territory. And one of them was a city, the last one was called Lachish. Right? If you want to remember that, Think of, you know, think of a French breakfast. What are we having today? La quiche. Right? It's la quiche. All right? That was, Rebecca, blame her for that joke. All right. So, so this, is, this is what's taking place. And th- this time, you know, this green would be way into the light green. And they're coming down, you know, in, into that's Jerusalem right here. So they're coming down that direction. That's about, La quiche was about 25 miles away from Jerusalem, southwest. 
fortified city, right? So that means there's walls around it, it's up on a hill, and it's protected. The, the Syrians travel with such a large army, they even brought engineers with them. This is the first army to have engineers in the army. So the engineers, what do they do? They solve problems and lack social skills. Those are the two things that they do. And they, so they're, they're, they're easy, easy. The, you engineers in the room are going, wait, was that funny? Um, <laughs> so they're coming down. And they're taking over territory after territory, and they get to Lachish, and the city's built up. And you can go there today, because we did. In fact, if you come on the trip, you'll come and you'll see Lachish. And you'll see this great up-on-a-hill area. You know, it's all ruins now. But you can still see the ramps that the Assyrians built to go in and to kill people. Now, here's the really cool part. If you go to Mosul, you're going to Nineveh. And the king, Sennacherib, was there. And, and he left behind his palaces. Only they had to be excavated, right? So in about 1825, an archaeologist and his team were digging, and they came across Sennacherib's palace. And there was one room in there that I'm going to call the movie room because it was the modern-day movie room. Right? If you have a movie room, you've got a big screen, you tell stories, you can see it. In that day, there was no projection, there were no cameras or anything. So what the guy did is he had, a, he had a, his artisan carve the story of Lachish's demise. And as you go across the room, through the room, he could see the whole story carved into the stone. And the archaeologist took that stone and, and, and carved the walls off of the walls, and then they took them to, to London, England. Right? So, so it's in the British Museum today. And if you go in there, you can see the exact story on the walls. And this is the room you can go into. It's like 27 feet of story, and it starts off with archers and people throwing things over the walls, and then you see them building the, the ramps, and you see them moving things up the ramp, you see bodies falling off, and you see some of, some of the brutality. It was brutal. So they caught three of the guys, and this is part of the story. You can look at this right here. And, and they impaled them, and this is in front of the wall, and they filleted them. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? It's a lot of extra work, right? You, why not just kill them and move on? And the answer is they wanted everybody in the city to look down and see what was going to happen to them. And they wanted their hearts to melt with fear. They would cut off heads and make piles of heads outside of their, their kingdom. And I hate to get so graphic, but, but you've got to follow this. You gotta, this is the kind of brutality that the Syrians were capable of, known for, and in, even in Jonah's day, it would have been the same. They are such wicked people. Let me just give you one more little picture. It's so cool. So this is, so it tells a story of the captured, then they show them carting them off and making them go back to um, Nineveh. This is where they had to go back to. So that is King Sennacherib and um, Sennacherib. I can never get it right, but we're going to just move on. And this is the line of people that they brought back from Lachish, and he's making decisions. It, 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 this is what the archaeologists say, they, that like you get to live and survive and you're dead. And, you know, so there wasn't a great assimilation of people because a lot of them just ended up dead. Now I'm going to zoom in on the... On, so you know what a throne is, right? Every king sits on a throne. Even in that day, they sat on thrones. When an artist depicts a throne, often they'll put in symbols of who this guy is. So this is an Assyrian king. We're going to zoom in. And, and, and so we're, we're really close on the throne now. This is part of his throne. First of all, the whole right in here, all these guys... Now, I've got to make sure I'm saying this right. This is what I think 
this is, I have not read, I looked for scientific journals, I looked for archaeology reports on this. I'm just going to tell you what I think. I don't think this is what the throne actually looked like. I think this is the artist's rendition. These are, because the kingdom expi- expands as you destroy one leader, one city after another, I think those are all the cities he's taken over. All those cities would pay tribute into him. They represent the leaders holding up his throne. But the more interesting part is look right here or here. What do those look like to you? Skulls. Skulls. And the skulls are what holds up his throne. Right? What, what is this whole kingdom based on? It's brutality. Death. And by the way, just the, lest we get too... Eric, Every empire has expanded through brutality and death. And take it, nobody goes, you know what I want? You know, this whole Israel thing is kind of nice and cute, but let's become Assyrians. It's not going to happen. You go one at a time and you take what they own and it becomes yours and they are just subjects to, to the king. Here's my point. Empires are won, not given, and conquest is brutal. It's brutal. When you think of of Jonah being told to go to Nineveh, what you need to hear in your head is God telling you to go to ISIS. Do you remember in your mind those 14 guys or how many of there were in those orange suits and, and they filmed their executions, cutting off their heads when ISIS did that? Do you remember how you felt? Can you imagine God telling you, yeah, I know there's a battle to be fought there, I know those are evil people, but I need you to go to them and preach. That's what Jonah was told to do. And all those, or if you're a different era, I want you to go talk to Hitler and talk, tell Nazis about what they're doing and, and tell them about me. That's what Jonah was asked to do. So that's, that's just the setup. It kind of changes the story. This is not a kid's story anymore, is it? We left that part out, right? For good reason. We want our kids to sleep through the night. All right. But the Lord hurled, so he's on the boat. Remember, he got in the boat going the wrong direction. The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted out to their gods. They weren't, they weren't Jewish, they weren't Israelites. They're calling out to their pagan gods for help. And by the way, probably multiple gods represented um, through the crew on the boat. To their gods for help and threw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. A little more buoyancy. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. Does that sound familiar? Big storm. The guy who sleep in the boat. If it doesn't sound familiar, read your New Testament. Read about Jesus. Um, I'm not going to unpack that, but it's, it's in there, and there are some connections. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? By the way, Jesus woke up the exact same way. Get up and pray to your God. Right? Because we've got all these guys represented. We need your God represented as well. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused a terrible storm. A superstitious way of figuring out whose problem this was. Why is God doing this to us? Right? But guess what? God speaks through their ways. He talks to them through the casting of lots. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. I think God is so funny. Yeah, I don't care. Do what you want. Okay. Oh, it's him, by the way. Right? And Jonah's like, oh, God. 
So, as a, so they go, why has this awful storm come down enough, they demanded. You're the guy. You got the answers. We just found out through the lot thing. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? He's being interrogated as the ship is just bouncing on the waves. It's kind of funny to me. You know, all those questions. And he's going, ah, Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, not your little fake gods. The God of heaven. By the way, the God who made the sea and the land and everything. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Right? Hey, you want on our boat? Yeah. Well, what are you doing? Where are you going? It, pleasure trip? Business? No, I'm just running away from the Lord. All right. Got that down. Come on on. All right. They already told him that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. I love that. Oh, why did you do it? Well, we're in this, we're in, we're, literally, we're in your boat with you. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop the storm? Wasn't that a beautiful question? I would have said, you should pray harder to your guys. I don't care. You should just, Jonah doesn't. He goes, throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. You're in danger because of me. Now, that raises a question for me. Why didn't Jonah just jump overboard? Right? Why did he say, throw me into the sea? Why did he make them deal with that moral dilemma? Do we throw him over? Don't we throw him over? Why didn't he just go, guys, it's my fault. I got this. Bam, bam, bam. Gone, done. It's over. Seems. And I think the answer, and again, this is, I have to do a little conjecture, but bear with me. I haven't read any better answer, and I think this is the most reasonable answer. To the Jewish person, taking your own life was unforgivable. Suicide is a big... In fact, some of us struggle with that today, right? We have the relative, someone who we know committed suicide, and we think, oh, you know, I get this question every so often, so Doug, does that mean that my brother or my father or my mother, are they doomed to hell because that sin's unforgivable? My answer to you in Christ is no. That God forgives us for every sin. That's just one more. It's one more. It's not the, now, if, if, if you're in a dark place, that is not permission. That's why people don't want to say that out loud, that... No, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. No, God's grace is bigger than that. No, God loves you more than that. That Suicide is always temporary insanity, very temporary and very permanent. But for the Jewish person who didn't have Christ and talk about grace, you do that. Life was so sacred. You do that, you're doomed. Right? So fast forward the clock to about 70, 72 A.D., what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD? Do you remember? It was destroyed. Romans, the Roman Empire, brutal, brutal, was there when Jesus was there. The Roman Empire was done. There was a Jewish revolt. They came in. They go, well, we're done with you. And they started killing all the Jews. They burned Jerusalem kind of to the ground. This is when Jesus said, not a stone will remain of the, of the temple because of what's coming from the Romans. He didn't talk about the Romans. He just said it's going to happen. Right, so that happened in 70 AD. The Jews are on the run, and they run to this place called, and you, may, you may recognize it, the name Masada. This is a, a fortress that Herod had built on top of a big mountain right next to the Dead Sea. And if you come to Israel with me next year, you can see it, and you can go on it, and you can see all this stuff. It's the coolest thing ever, right? So they're up there, and the Romans do the exact same thing. They have the siege, and they spend years kind of with fortresses. Around. They build big ramps because they got to get up and kill these remaining Jews. 
And when they finally got there, and they were finally going to come in, just before they got there, the Jewish people said, we're not going to give them the satisfaction of killing us. We're better to be dead than to be captured by Rome. And so what they go, they all committed suicide. They didn't all commit suicide. You know what they did? They drew lots. And 12 guys had to kill all the others. Because suicide was so against... They, they died willingly, but they didn't take their own lives. Twelve guys killed them all. And then they drew straws again kind of thing. And one guy killed the other 11. And the last guy was the only guy to commit suicide. Does that make a strong statement about how Jewish people feel about suicide? To go through all of that? So now we go back to Jonah and we realize that DNA of those emotions about suicide are part of him. Right? So... So throw me overboard. I can't do it myself. I can't. It's against, it's against God's will for me to do that. But throw me overboard. That's what I think happened. So instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Not their gods. They, called, they, they have been converted now to Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. He's the one you're upset with. And don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Right? We're just innocent bystanders. So don't hold us accountable. And then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. It's done. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. By the way, if you do know the Jesus story, wasn't that exactly what happened to the disciples? When the seas calmed at just the word of Jesus, who is this man? This is the guy we're going to follow. I'm going with him to the end. Those kind of vows are being made. The sailors had the exact same experience. Who is this God? Now, the Lord arranged for a great fish. It doesn't say whale. There is no whale in the story of Jonah. Right? Fish to swallow, might have been a whale though, fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside this fish for three days and three nights. And we've already talked about that. So let's go to, you know, Act 2 or Chapter 2. And I'm going to call it Prayers from the Belly. Right? So these are prayers from the belly. And it's, it's both the belly of the fish and probably the most internal part of Jonah at that time. I'm not going to read you the whole chapter. You can go read it for yourself. This is where Jonah turns back to God from the belly of a fish, but there's still a sort of to it. It's like he turned, but did he, did he really, you're kind of wrestling with this throughout the story of Jonah. Did he really turn back to God and say, okay. So I'm just going to read to you two verses. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. Can I just talk to you first for a minute? If you're keeping God at a distance, there's going to come a day when our lives, all of us, when our lives feel like they're slipping away, you're going to remember the Lord. And I want to encourage you not to wait. Don't wait for that near-death experience to turn to God. You don't have to wait for it. But, but almost, I think, all of us will. If we feel our lives slipping away, there's going to be that moment of, we're going to turn to the God that we trust or we're going to think of the God that we never trusted. Uh, my prayer for you is it's, it's, it's just turning back to the Lord yet again, even in the days of, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear this moment because you're with me. That's what God offers 
all of us. So my life was slipping away. I remembered the Lord. And then, verse 10, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah onto a dry beach. That's just kind of like, okay, so Jonah had this come back to God moment. And then God says, okay, fish, spit him back up. By the way, fish don't spit. I've, re- I've researched this heavily. And, uh, <laughs> but they do throw up. They do puke, right? So when you, think of, when you think of him on the shore, you need to think of him. He wasn't like, you know, hey, and I'm fine. You know, my clothes are clean. It was, he was drenched in vomit of fish and all that would entail. Just because it's not a children's story, you need to know that. All right, so the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah up on the beach and it was close enough that it was time to go, right? So we'll go to chapter three. Jonah obeys, question mark. And, and you're going to see this tentative, I think, obedience. So here's what it says happens. Then the Lord, chapter three, the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. The population is like 120, the Bible says, 120,000 people. On the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days from now, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. He's yelling that through the streets. He smells like dead fish as he's walking around. And people are going, who is that guy? And why is he saying we're going to be destroyed? Now let me ask you a question. How good a message is that? How good a preaching job is he doing? What's missing from the message? By the way, in, in Hebrew it's like five words. What's missing from that message? Come on. What? God. He doesn't mention God. There's no hope. There's no repentance. There's no changing your mind. There's, there's none of that. All he says is, that all we have recorded is, is 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And I think that is bare minimal compliance. Right? So, so, so think of it this way. Your kids are fighting. And, and you, the, the little, your son decks your little girl, right? And he's like, oh, but she pulled my hair, whatever it is. And you go, I want you to say you're sorry. And he goes, sorry. Did you get what you were looking for? You got Jonah. That's how he preached. 40 days from now, you're going to hell. That's kind of the message that he would give. And you've heard preachers like that. Where's the hope? Where's the way? Come on. That's not, that's not what God wanted him to do. And he knew what God wanted him to do. The people of Nineveh believed God's message anyway. Right? And from greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. And you don't know this yet, but Jonah hated every minute of that. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, the capital, the great, the king of Assyria, the empire, heard what he was saying, he stepped down from his royal throne, he took off his royal robes, he put his status behind him, he dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. His throne became a heap of ashes. And the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds, I love the animal part, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. We're going to fast. This is repentance time. The people and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. By the way, for those of you who dress up your dogs, 
you got to buy some sackcloth or burlap for him, you know, just in case you go through this kind of time, you're ready. And stop doing that, by the way. And um, (laughs) that's humiliating for the dog. Anyway, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. Right? This... We're all repenting. Even the animals are going to repent. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. This is coming from the throne. Who can tell? Perhaps even God will change his mind. We don't know it from Jonah. Because Who can tell? Because Jonah didn't tell us this. Who can tell? God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. That's God's heart. That's what God wanted. So when you read in the Hebrew, and I didn't, I just looked it up, the word that gets translated destroyed literally means turned over. It actually has two meanings. It can be a turnover like total destruction, right? That's that's how we have chosen to, and that's what it most naturally means. Or it could just be a turnover of the way things are to a new way. Everything is turned over over right and here's my point (laughs) the prophecy came true it just wasn't destruction it was everything got turned over now you need to know they repented of their repentance later on that's kind of convicting right they they, they turned to god and then they didn't stay turned to god they went back to brutality because we know that from the whole hezekiah um so wouldn't you think that jonah would be happy I mean, if all of Rochester turned to Christ, wouldn't we be happy? Right? If, if all of anybody turned to Christ, wouldn't we be happy? Jonah's a man of God, a prophet of God. Don't you think he'd be happy? So Jonah 4 says, this change of plans. By the way, this is the part of the story that didn't make the children's books. Right? Because it's a little complex. So Jonah, the change of, of plans, of God's plans, greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? So we didn't know that. But before he even left, he goes, the reason he's not doing this is because he's afraid God's going to do exactly what happened. That is why I ran away to Tarshish, the opposite direction, 2,500 miles. I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Why didn't he preach that? You're going to be destroyed in 40 days but I need you to know something about God. He's merciful and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger, but you've got there and he's full of unfailing love. Turn to him and he might change his mind. He didn't say that. He just knew it and he didn't like that about God. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Those of you who have this conception of God that God can't wait to send you to hell, you're misinformed. You're grossly misinformed. God's dream for you and for me is to turn from the rotten stuff and turn to him and lay it down, receive forgiveness, his compassion, and live new lives, to be turned over. To be turned over. Just kill me now, Lord. Right? He's done. He's done with God. He's done with these people. I hate the fact that you save the people. These people are my enemies. This is ISIS. How could you save ISIS? And by the way, flashback to Jesus. Nineveh is going to stand at Judgment Day condemning those people who didn't receive Christ because they heard the lame preaching of Jonah and they turned around. And they've got every right to go, Jesus was right in front of you. Just kill me now, Lord. If I, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. 
The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? A very gentle response, right? And then Jonah goes up to a hillside, and he starts to watch, because he wants to see if the city's going to be destroyed or not. It's not 40 days quite yet. So he's watching over the city, and a, a, the Bible says a plant grew up, right? And it offered him shade. By the way, in that country, you want the shade. It's hot. And he's enjoying the shade. I don't know if he has a drink or not, but it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to watch what happens. He's, got, he's there, he's relaxed, he's in the shade. But then this worm comes along. You see the worm in this, in this artist rendition of it. And it eats the, the tree at the roots or in the base of it and cuts it down. Right? So the, tree, the plant is dead. And Jonah is ticked. Really, really angry about this death of this plant. He's mourning it and he misses it and it served him well, right? And here's what happened next. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted. Even angry enough to die. Right? This is sort of like a kid going to you, I wish I was never born. I hate you. I hate this family. This, everything's wrong here. In this kind of Jonah's four-year-old moment here, retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant though you did nothing to put it there. You had no investment. And it came quickly and it died quickly. And then he turns the corner and he says, but Nineveh, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people that I am deeply invested in because I have everything to do with them being alive. I have everything to do with their gift of life. I have everything to do with their existence. I created them for the same reason I created you, this relationship with me and with each other, this, this thing we called love and community, the most deeply satisfying stuff in life. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. They don't know me, not to mention all the animals, which I also find humorous. It's almost like he said, Peter's coming and they need a little, a little hope in the Bible, right? He's not only the 120,000 people, but not even to mention the animals. They count too to God. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? The end. <laughs> That's it. That's where it stops. And it's kind of like a very abrupt 1920s movie. It just ends when up come the credits. The end, just in case you didn't know, it's time to leave the theater. Right? And so that, the end, that's it. It's the end. It's the end of the story. It's the end of this message except for this. Except that Jesus... 800 years later and a couple of empires later who were brutal wouldn't let it go. Right? Wouldn't it have been nice if he just let that crowd go? Instead, he goes up to a mountainside and he brings all these would-be followers to him and he starts to teach them the most important things. And part of the most important thing is found in Matthew 5, 43 and then verse 40, uh, 43 through 45 and then verse 48. 43, you have heard, this is Jesus, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And we all go, yeah, because we're Jonah, we like that. But I say, love your enemies. By the way, when we hear enemy, we think of the person who cuts us off in traffic, we think of the painful mother-in-law, we, we think of some relationship, somebody who's really bugging us, you know, that person, my neighbor, we got this property dispute, we think of stuff like that. These people didn't think of that. When Jesus said this, they thought of Rome and all its brutality. If Jonah would have heard of it, he would have thought of the Syrian Empire. Right? We think of our neighbor. And by the way, that's fine. If that, those are the people you're struggling with, it counts for them too. But, but just so you know, the command was to love people. It was to love ISIS. It was to love ISIS because ISIS was on them. 
Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both evil and good because he loves them both. He's not happy with the evil people. They're in spiritual darkness, but he loves them both. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike because they're all his creations. There's judgment coming, for, for, or there's mercy and grace, but he gives it to everybody. But you are to be perfect, even your Father in heaven is perfect. Be like God. Love like God. Care about those people. Don't ignore the 120,000. Don't be like Jonah. See, the real lesson of Jonah has nothing to do with Jonah. It's us. Jonah was written to be a mirror for its readers to go, how do I do at this? How am I loving people who I don't like and who I hate and who I fear? Do I see the spiritual darkness or do I just hate people and wish they were dead? Is God just my God or is God could be everybody's God? Who are the people, this is the question I think we have to ask ourselves, who are the people that raise in me fear and hate that can keep me from loving like God? Who's my enemy? Who are the people I don't even want to love? Early on in Crosswinds days, I heard a speaker say something. I grabbed the phrase and I adopted it for us, and I brought it up over and over again over the last 21 years, and it's a reminder that, basically it's a reminder that everybody counts to God. And the statement was this, it just helps me. It was, I will never look into the eyes of a person that God doesn't love as much as he loves me. So no matter what, when I'm seeing people, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what their skin color is, no matter what they're doing, no matter how far from God they are, no matter what they're doing with their private lives and how they're living, I will never look into another person's eyes that doesn't love God as much as he loves me. And that's my reminder not to be a Jonah. That's my reminder that God cares about every single one of them. And I hope you'll get the same thoughts in your mind. I hope it becomes part of your DNA to go, I've got to look into people's eyes. And I've got to remember God loves them, even if I am struggling with fear and hate right now. We're going to sing a song to close, and I think it's a song that we're going to ask you to sing too. But in it, there's, there's this moment where we're going to say, um, brothers and sisters, you'll get it. And you need to know that they're brothers and sisters that are biological, there's brothers and sisters that are in Christ. Those are some of our most important relationships in, in, in the church together. We're family, right? But there's another brother and sisters. There's brother and sisters in humanity. That it's not the same one, but it's another way of saying it. We are all on the same planet, created by the same God, who died for all of us. We're, we're brothers and sisters in, in humanity. We, in a sense, are family. And all of us need God's love. And that's the lesson of Jonah. So open your hearts, and when we sing, sing it, sing it prayerfully and meaningfully to God. Let's pray. God, as we sing that song, my heart cries out to you that you would change the way I see, that you would help me to see people like you see them, and to love people like you love them. God, protect me from Jonah in me. In Christ's name, amen.